the music of Johnny Hickman. Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our December 1st, 2009 edition of the show. About uh, 8.09 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I will remind you quickly that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at org. You can also uh, catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. If you're like me, uh, your blood gets to boiling about a couple times a week thinking about what's been done to our economy, thinking about how many people are suffering because of it. You think you've got somewhat of an idea who the culprits are, but you wish you understood a little better how this happened. You wish you uh, had a better answer for the seemingly ridiculous notion that you and your credit card debt and your neighbor and his wacky mortgage are primarily responsible for the meltdown. Well, wish no more. There's a new book out that will help you understand all of this and, and explain it to others. It's called The Looting of America, How Wall Street's Game of Fantasy Finance Destroyed Our Jobs, Pensions, and Prosperity, and What We Can Do About It. Our special guest today is the author of this wonderful resource, Les Leopold. Les co-founded and currently directs two nonprofit educational organizations, the Labor Institute and the Public Health Institute. He also designs research and educational programs on occupational safety and health, the environment, and economics. Les Leopold, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. I've really uh, enjoyed reading this book. It's really helped me immensely. I kind of had some basic understanding of what was going on, but actually when I would talk to other people about it, it was very difficult to explain, and now I, I feel more comfortable with that, and I feel a little bit uh, more empowered that there's actually something uh, we can do about it. So what was well, it that, that was the idea. Yeah, and so you succeeded, at least in my case. And so, so what was, uh, was it that led you to write this book? Was it simply a desire to try to make sense of this maddening situation? Well, I felt that we were uh, losing our citizenship, that if we didn't have an idea of what, of what came down on Wall Street, if we didn't turn our attention to that and we didn't uh, develop some basic knowledge about it, we were going to get wiped out as citizens. We just weren't going to be part of the debate. It was going to all happen behind our backs. Well, actually, even in full view, but we wouldn't know what was going on. So uh, I, I kind of jumped into it to see if I could break it down into terms that uh, folks could understand. And, uh, you know, uh, I think we got there. You know, if I could give your uh, listeners a money-back guarantee, I would, because I think they actually would say, hey, you know, this thing works for me. Yeah, yeah, very, very concise and uh, just uh, it not, it, 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 what was it, about 200 pages here? Yes, yeah, 200 pages, and it's not, you know, it's not a heavy uh, a policy wonk book. It's, you know, I, I, I really tried to... Uh, uh, one, keep it entertaining, and two, I knew it, most people just go blank when they hear about high finance because I went blank when I first heard about high finance. So I had to find another way to get into it, so I, uh, tell a story that people could you know, kind of latch onto and, and get into the amazing fact 
that we've just gone through, uh, you know, one of the biggest scams ever perpetrated in history, and it, uh, it really makes you uh, uh, step back and uh, look at, at what happened. And actually, what's happened uh, since the economy crashed, is, in fact, is even more amazing than the crash itself in some ways. Yes, and, and we'll get into that. So uh, why do you call it uh, fantasy finance? Why do you use that term? Well, it, it turns out that, that um, uh, we embarked on this gigantic experiment back in the mid-1970s. That experiment had two fundamental features. One was the unleashing of the financial sector, that all these controls that were put in place during the New Deal that was supposed to prevent another Great Depression, all that stuff got thrown out the window. Uh, Even before Reagan, uh, at the end of the Carter administration, they got rid of caps on credit card interest rates so the sky was the limit. You know, the idea of usury was something they associated with the Middle Ages and superstition. And the modern markets would police themselves. You wouldn't need the government in a way. That was one part of the experiment. The other part was getting rid of these very high tax rates on the super-rich. You know, one of the things we learned, or we thought we learned in the Great Depression, was that when the income distribution was more compressed because we taxed the super-rich heavily, then uh, we had a safer, sounder economy. And this prevailed during World War II and in the 50s and the 60s. As a matter of fact, the 50s and the 60s saw the most compressed income distribution in the history of America. You know, some people say that's why it was such a prosperous time. In any event... By the end of the 1970s, the clamor had uh, grown that we should un- we should change the tax rate. As a matter of fact, during the decade of the 1980s, we cut it from a 70% rate to a 28% rate on the top fraction of the one top 1%, the richest people in the world. Uh, and the idea was that they were going to go in this vast investment boom. Well, a funny thing happened on the way to the vast investment boom. Folks ran out of places. There was so much money at the top that people ran out of places to invest it. Uh, they didn't, there weren't enough uh, uh, safe investments in their minds. Uh, so what happened was the new deregulated Wall Street con- concocted these new financial instruments that were basically a series of bets upon bets. And that's why I call them fantasy finance because there was no tangible asset underneath it all. You, could, uh, you and I can make a bet on your neighbor's house burning down. You know, that's illegal in the insurance industry, but it's legal in if you call it something else and do it through the financial sector. And these bets upon bets work great until something goes wrong way at the bottom uh, of the food chain. And that's something that went wrong was housing prices couldn't keep going up and up and up. That was what was underneath this pile of fantasy finance instruments. Well, until the crash, though, an amazing thing happened. The rich got even richer. Uh, there's one statistic that just blows my mind. In 1970, the ratio of the, of the uh, uh, top 100 CEOs versus the average worker was 45 to 1. $1 for the average worker, 45 for the top 100 CEOs. Guess what it was by 2006? It's going to make me very angry. <laughs> it will make you very angry, and, you're, and uh, uh, too bad it's not, if you had a caller that could try to, try to guess. The number is 1,723 to 1. It went from 45 to 1 to 1,723 to 1. So there was so much money at the top that these folks didn't know where to put it. And that's when Wall Street created this whole new gambling industry that I call fantasy finance. When it crashed, 
the one thing uh, about the financial sector that's different from any other sector, when it gets a cold, we get pneumonia. When this whole house of cards came tumbling down, it dragged the real economy right down with it. Uh, and it, it literally forced uh, a bailout mm-hmm. because things were so bad that had we not bailed out Wall Street, we would have fallen completely into the next Great Depression. They had us over a barrel because we deregulated it. We repeated the exact same mistakes of the 1920s. By the end of the 1920s, we had the worst distribution of income uh, ever in America, and we had a uh, financial sector that was running wild. The two joined forces and created a huge boom that went crash. Uh, And we thought we didn't learn anything. You know, we learned a lot for about 30, 40 years, and then uh, we said, ah, it's a modern society. We don't have to leave all those things in place that we did to control this uh, during the 1930s. And then it happened again. I, I don't know how many more times it has to happen before we realize you can't let the distribution of income run wild, and you can't let Wall Street run wild. You cannot do it and have anything like a sane society. You just can't do it. So yeah, that's me, what the book's about. Yeah, and let me <laughs> let me those make are the cliff notes. Sh- yeah, thank you. <laughs> let, let me make sure I, I I understand this correctly. So it's this: if you uh, take away these regulations, you take away these higher tax rates on on the very wealthy. They they just accumulate this excessive amount of wealth that they're just looking for something to do with, and then the games get crazier and crazier. The, it it always leads to a speculative boom. You get these, you get this money racing around the globe looking for higher and higher returns, and uh, the deregulated financial sector comes up with gimmicks that makes those returns seem real and safe until they aren't, and you end up with, uh, with a financial crash. Uh, that the culprit, you know, if people are worried about their neighbor's mortgage or they're worried about, you know, excessive credit card debt, that's all a result of the Wall Street fantasy finance, not the cause. Those subprime mortgages were the fodder to create these fantasy finance instruments. That's kind of explained in the book, and I don't want to take people through it, you know, on the phone. But uh, that they couldn't get the subprime mortgages fast enough on Wall Street. They were begging for them. They were paying premium prices for them. They didn't care whether or not people could pay them or not because they offed them in these complicated financial instruments. They packaged them, off them, and made a huge profit every time they sold one. It was the most profitable enterprise in the history of Wall Street. Uh, when you deregulate Wall Street, it's a guarantee that they're going to create a casino. That's what they know how to do, and they can, they can do it in such a way that they make enormous fees uh, from creating it, selling it, and trading it. Yeah, This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Les Leopold, and we're talking about his book, The Looting of America, How Wall Street's Game of Fantasy Finance Destroyed Our Jobs, Pensions, and Prosperity, and What We Can Do About It. Uh, Les, you know, some of these schemes that they they came up with, and you were talking about they can just bet on almost anything. I mean, I mean, they seem so many degrees detached from anything real that that they could be like I don't know, like Monty Python routines or something. It it's they're so oh, it's absurd. Un- it's unbelievable. Oh, for, first of all, I'm talking to you, and you're in Orange County. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Well, but one of the first big scams took place in Orange County. Uh, used to have a treasurer there that was, you know. 
uh, you know, was uh, one step away from the loony bin, and he got, he got, he bought all these things. But the one that got to me, uh, I, I, I'll explain briefly how, how this one worked, was the one that hit the Wisconsin school districts. They got suckered into putting up, they borrowed $200 million. They were hoping to help their school system. They got schnookered into buying, five school districts got together, and they put up $200 million. And what they thought they were buying were double-A AA and triple-A bonds and corporations. But what they actually bought was a fantasy finance instrument of the following kind. Their money was put away in an account in the Grand Cayman Islands, and it sat there as an insurance policy for junk debt that was owned by the Royal Bank of Canada. Oh, the loan, by the way, came from DEPFA, which is an Irish bank. So you had an Irish bank loaning money to the Wisconsin school system, put, put the money away in the Grand Cayman Islands, which then insured the junk debt of the Royal Bank of Canada. Well, guess what happened? The junk debt turned into junk. The Royal Bank of Canada took the $200 million, put it in the pocket, in their pocket, as an, as an insurance premium, and the, uh, the Wisconsin school districts got nothing, and they still owe $200 million. And, catch this, for putting the deal together, the Royal Bank of Canada took $11.5 million off the top, and the broker, which uh, a local broker who didn't know what he was selling, got uh, th- that brokerage got a million and a half dollars for uh, their part in the deal. That's fantasy finance. There wasn't they they own nothing. They just were the uh, insurance agent for something they didn't even know existed. And that stuff was all legal. And you know what? It's still legal. Right this second, it was legal. Now yeah. imagine a whole economy operating that way. It's got to crash, and it did. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit in the book uh, Enron, and uh, a few months back I, I got around to watching that movie, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, the documentary, and, and wow, I, you know, I just, it, it really struck me because uh, these, uh, when I saw that this Enron melted down, what, in 2001, two? somewhere around? Somewhere around there, yeah. yeah. They, and they were doing all this crazy stuff then, you, w- you would have thought, you would think it would have been some kind of warning. Well, see, here's the thing. Uh, our policymakers for three generations drank the Kool-Aid, which was that the less the government has to do with these fancy markets, the better, because these markets, the free market, will pr- police itself. You don't have to worry. Uh, so you have an Enron or two. The investors pull out of Enron. They put their money elsewhere. But the economy as a whole still stays stable. As a matter of fact, Enron proved to them that all this fantasy finance junk actually worked, that it, it was shifting risk from one person to another, all, to people who didn't want it, to people who thought they could handle it, all around the globe. And they thought, ah, see, this is proof. The system didn't crash. Enron did, but the rest of the system didn't. It's working. It's policing itself. That's the lessons that they learned. And guy like uh, Alan Greenspan, Fed chair at the time, re- was the absolute high priest of this philosophy. He, by the way, is totally recanted. He he said he's absolutely and he said stunned disbelief that in fact they didn't police themselves that the thing crashed. He can't believe that it happened. And now he's got all sorts of regrets. He's even calling on the 19 largest banks to be broken up into smaller pieces so they're no longer too big to fail. Now that is some to me that's the best example of fantasy finance having him change his mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, kudos to him for at least uh, waking up on that and uh yeah, I mean this uh too big to fail. We hear that term a lot and uh what uh 
that some uh, Robert Reich has even talked about it recently that we need to do something about that uh, that uh, uh, Reich who was uh, Clinton's uh, what was his position in the Clinton administration Secretary of Labor yeah but it, I'll tell you I, I, I've complete I, I'm off the deep end now I, I mean you'll probably lose your license when you when I start <laughs> talking about what we ought to do I'm telling you know the looting of America is you know your handbook but when you get to the end I started to hint at, at what some proposals were and now reality has made it uh, uh, made me even more radical. I'm now thinking that, uh, okay, take the 19 largest banks and you break them up, and now you have 100 uh, banks instead of 19. They're still going to gamble. They're, sti- they're still going to try to play the fantasy finance game because it's so lucrative to play it. So what you have to do is set up all these regulations to stop 100 banks from playing uh, fantasy finance. Okay, then what do they do? They hire the smartest mathematicians they call them financial engineers in the world, and pay them huge bucks to get around the regulation. You say they can't make this kind of instrument, so they'll come up with another one that looks like it's not what it is, and it does the same thing as the one you just outlawed. And they'll get around it. And again, and so you're going back and forth. I'm saying, you know what? This is ridiculous. Why don't we just uh, nationalize the 19 big banks, turn them into public utilities, put these incredibly overpaid uh, bankers, the gamblers, the croupiers, put them on on uh, uh, civil service, let them earn a decent living, but uh, working their way up the civil service ranks, and then run the things for the public interest. Because we're learning right now, you cannot have a banking system that only cares about itself. Right this very minute, Ben Bernanke uh, says that the banks still are not lending money to small businesses. The banks we bailed out are not lending money to the small businesses, and therefore the unemployment rate is still going up. Now, and we're powerless to stop it. How, how can that be? We just gave them a trillion dollars, and we're powerless to stop it? I mean, it, it, I am flabbergasted uh, by the fact that we uh, – well, this is the sequence that I, I, I can't abide by. These guys – created these fantasy finance instruments, and they crashed the system, right? That's, that's uncontestable fact. We bail them out to somewhere between a trillion and 13 trillion, depending on how many of the guarantees you count the number. Mm-hmm. We, we rescue them from total collapse. They were, a year ago, they were on their knees crawling, uh, begging for help. We bail them out. We even let the richest banks uh, uh, you know, uh, suck up the money from AIG, what, that they shouldn't have gotten, but they got. Now they're making record profits while the unemployment rate is the highest since the Great Depression, and we're doing nothing about it. Mm-hmm. They're getting to walk off with their record profits while we have 49 million people who are hungry, according to the Department of Agriculture. We have the highest, one out of four kids is on food stamps. We have 30 million people who don't have jobs, and we're letting these guys walk off with record Profits and bonuses, how can we do this? What country are we living in? So I've gotten, like I said, you're going to lose your license. I've got, uh, uh, you know, the, the looting of America is going to be a warm-up to the next act. Uh, you know, it, I, I think I understated the case. So, yeah, so nationalizing the banks, uh, I I can see the logic of that, and I think, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. Uh, but now we already have all these people out there. Of screaming about Obama's health care plan that it's socialism, aren't they going to be even screaming even louder if you try to nationalize the banks? Oh, I got. They don't want that proposal. I got another one for them. <laughs> Let, let's see him argue against this. Try this one on for size. Uh, 
uh, I'll probably have it in the Huffington Post by the end of the week. Tie uh, the profit pool of Wall Street to the unemployment rate. Put a windfall profits on uh, a tax on Wall Street, 90% as long as the uh, uh, unemployment rate's above 10%, and then drop it, uh, drop the rate 10%, uh, 15% roughly every time the unemployment goes down 1%, so that the fate of Wall Street profit gets tied to the overall health of the economy. They wreck the economy. They have to be accountable uh, for its rebirth. So as long as unemployment's high, they don't get their money. Their money goes into the federal government and can do something about the deficit or do something about job creation. Now, what are the, what are the teabaggers going to say? That we should let Wall Street keep, uh, keep their money? What's the argument? I'd like to know. We, they shouldn't have their wealth tied to the unemployment rate, that it's okay for them to profit while people are, are, are going hungry? Put them on the defensive. I wish the administration and Congress had a little more gumption because it's not hard once you go after the cause, or the source of the problem, it's very hard to defend them. I mean, what are you? Someone going to defend Wall Street's profits and bonuses, saying, you know, this is a good thing for America? Come on, no one's going to defend them, it, 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 and it raises money. I, I completely <laughs> agree with you. I, I like this idea, and I, you know. The fact that Wall Street is, is profiting so much, we've bailed out so many of these people, uh, you know, they exist because of us. They, they couldn't exist without us, we the people. Uh, you know, these corporations, the fact that the state allows them to incorporate and get all the benefits that go with that means that they owe something back to the state. And I'll, I'll even up the ante more. Finance is something incredibly special. It has to serve the rest of the economy. I draw a distinction now between financial corporations and other corporations because it, when, a when, a financial, when the financial sector freezes up like it did a year ago, in one month, globally, catch this, auto sales fell 40%. Now, yeah, GM and Chrysler had problems, but to have global auto sales cr uh, drop 40%, it's because credit froze. You can't allow the whole world economy to be held hostage to what essentially are a series of private enterprises that are doing nothing else but trying to make as much money as they possibly can. And if that means opening up the largest casinos in the history of the world, they will do so. They have proven that they will do so. I can't see why we're going to let them do it again with our money this time. <laughs> it's just it, it, it's mind-boggling. Uh, there, there are actually two things that are mind-boggling about about this crisis. First is that you know uh, that we're letting them profit off our money while unemployment uh, is running wild. Uh, instead of using that money for job creation, we're just letting them have it, uh, so they can worry about you know where to put their third and fourth house. Uh, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, the second thing is our response has been so tepid, and that's why I wrote this book. I had a feeling people would not. Uh, uh, react because they feel intimidated. But I, never for the life of me did I think we would be so quiet. It's hard to believe that the teabaggers are the biggest game in town, mm -hmm. that they're out there protesting. But, you know, uh, every now and then you hear, well, there was this thing against the bankers in uh, Chicago, but that was, it stopped. You'd think there would be a demonstration every day. You'd think there would be tens of thousands of people being mobilized by the aggressive movement of this country to demand an alternative, but we can't get our act together. We don't even have an alternative. Some people want to break up the banks. Some people want to get rid of the Fed. Some people like Ron Paul and want to go back to the gold standard. We don't have a coherent 
alternative because we don't have a sense of what the problem is. It's two things. Wall Street is much, much too big for the rest of the economy. We've got to get money out of Wall Street and into the real economy. And two, the distribution of income is a disaster. We have to move money from the top of the income uh, uh, bracket, the tippy top, back into the middle. That's always been the secret of our e- economic strength. We ha- you can't let Wall Street become its own uh, uh, you know, never-ending, expanding Las Vegas. And you have to do something about the distribution of income. We cannot become a billionaire bailout society. That's what we now are. It's not capitalism. It's not socialism. It's a billionaire bailout society, which will be the title of my next book. <laughs> All right, I like that. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI and Irvine, Robert Larson here speaking with Les Leopold, and the title of his current book we're talking about is The Looting of America, How Wall Street's Game of Fantasy Finance Destroyed Our Jobs, Pensions, and Prosperity, and What We Can Do About It. So, yeah, I really like uh, some of these things you're proposing, Les, for um, solutions, and um, let's talk a little bit more about how this happened, and then we can go back into the solutions at the end of the show to end on a high note. But, uh, yeah, I I like there was a a chart you had early on in the book that showed uh, 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 how productivity and wages uh, had traditionally been wedded, and then they started drifting apart in the 1970s. And could you go into some specifics sure. about that, yeah. how that happened? Absolutely. First of all, let's explain what productivity is. Productivity is a very interesting economic measure. It's the total output of the economy, uh, the private sector primarily. In, in other words, the total value of all the goods and services divided by the number of hours it takes to produce them, the working hours. So it's not, it, it's not a measure of how much people get paid. It's, it's how productive each hour of work is. And, and the wealth of nature, nations is pretty much tied to productivity. If you have a high level of productivity, you can do a lot of things in your country, uh, uh, good things. Now, here's, this, this is quite a story. Uh, between 1945 and 1975, roughly, productivity virtually went up year after year after year, and so did the average real wage, uh, real wage mean, meaning after you take into account inflation. Uh, the, the real earning power of the non-supervisory production worker, about 100 million people in the country fit that category. That's like two, three-quarters of the workforce. Uh, they, their life got, their economic buying power got better and better year after year. This was the economic miracle for, for, more than, uh, for, for nearly uh, 30 years after World War II. This is why our nation was the envy of the world. Our working class became a middle class because every year their lives improved. Uh, it, was, it was really amazing. And, and, and the ratio was roughly 1% up in productivity led to about six-tenths of a percent up in wages. That was a nice thing. And so when I, when I was in graduate school, this was a long time ago, but when I was there, <laughs> the, the, uh, that's what they, they told us that's what determines the real wage, productivity, because they assumed it was going to be shared like that forever. Well, what a funny thing happened. Once this experiment took off in the uh, mid-'70s, early-'80s, the two lines that, that literally were right on top of each other, uh, like a 45-degree angle, all of a sudden productivity continues up 
uh, went up another 90% from there to, to today. But the average real wage broke away from the line, went flat, and actually has gone down 18%. So what does that mean? It means this year, for example, there are $3 trillion that would have gone to working people, the average working person, to improve their lives, that now is going to the top fraction of the 1%. That's real money. The fruits of productivity are no longer going to the people who work, uh, who are the, your, your basic uh, working class, middle class people. They're no longer getting the fruits of productivity. It's kind of all being hogged by the people at the top. And it, 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 this leads to you know, another stunning statistic that I, I love to talk about when I'm near a campus, especially one in California, which is for, we then, this process of not sharing productivity uh, led to the minting of billionaires. This is when it starts. And right now, the top 400 billionaire, billionaires, 400 the richest people, uh, collectively have $1.5 trillion in wealth. If we reduce their wealth to something like yours, roughly $100 million each, isn't that roughly your bracket? Yeah. <laughs> something like 100. If we reduce them each to $100 million, let's face it, they would not be suffering. You and I would not be suffering. $100 million each. We would still have about $1.45 trillion in the public treasury if we had, like, uh, had, had, had real uh, progressive income taxes like we had in the 50s and 60s if we left them in place. We have an extra $1.45 trillion. How much is that? That's enough to set up a trust fund so that every kid in this country could go to a public university or college, two-, four-year, or graduate school, for free in perpetuity. Mm. That's what we let get away. Free higher education for everyone forever, for, for, you know, for all the generations in the future. Had we had a progressive taxation and not let all this productivity money go to the top fraction of 1%, that's what we gave away. That's why the infrastructure of California is collapsing. That's why the infrastructure of the whole country is collapsing, because the wealthy are no longer coming close to paying their fair share. I've become a Eisenhower radical. In the 19, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower is now my hero. In the 1950s, he presided over an era where the marginal tax rate on the top uh, 1% uh, which was roughly those people making, in today's dollars, $3 million or more, the, top, the next dollar they had to pay 91 cents of it to the federal treasury. It was a 91% tax rate. Now it's, you know, we're lucky if we can get 30 out, 30%. Usually it's capital gains at 15% or it's stashed away someplace and it's 0%. That, that's what we're facing now. So the, so the public, the idea of, you know, having a real strong uh, public sector uh, you know, I, I found something out. I can't believe it was true. Your roads out there now rank 49th in the country in terms of repairs and quality. The <laughs> California freeway system, you know, the, the, the golden contribution to the, to the globe, right, after the Autobahn that Hitler built was the California freeway system. It was free, not like in New Jersey where you've got to pay every six, uh, six miles, you know, uh, another buck. It was a free system. It was, you know, smooth roads when I lived out there in the 1970s. Oh, now yeah. it's a mess. I remember. It's a mess. Yeah. 
I know. And that's because we let this productivity thing get away. Right. Long and answer to, to, your, to your very good question. <laughs> and, yeah, the, you, the schools out here, you, you alluded to that. We had just, they're now engaging in this huge increase. 30%, right? Yeah, in tuition, and uh, it's already not affordable to many young people. And it should be free. Mm-hmm. This country is so filthy rich. Had we had a fair taxation system, which is you know where I take the book eventually, these are the kinds of things we could have. It, higher education and health care you know, is something that we shouldn't have to worry about. And we can afford it easily. Well, sometimes I, I feel like we're becoming more and more like Mexico, where there's a lot of wealth in that country, but a heck of a lot of really, really poor people. And that, that's like, it seems to me like we're, we're heading in that direction. Yeah, if we keep it up, we're going to be, you know, illegal uh, immigrants on the other side of the border. We're going to be going down there. It's going to be better than here. I, I mean, this is what happens. This is the hollowing out of the, you know, billionaire bailout society. You know, you want to talk about, you know, what are some of the things we, we, we could do? Here's one thing we could have done a year ago, and, and it would have passed. We could have had what I call the presidential wage cap. When we were giving all this money to Wall Street, we didn't ask for anything in return. We should have asked for the following. No one on a wealth, until unemployment comes down to below 5%, until the economy is really humming, nobody on Wall Street makes more than the President of the United States. Period. The end. You want our trillion dollars? That's what you've got to agree to live with. You don't like it? Go get another job. Go get a job in the real economy. We don't care if the best and the brightest leave Wall Street. You just wrecked the world economy, and now you're going to tell us you're the best and the brightest? You just proved that you're not. Go to Europe. You want to work something? You want... You don't like it here? Go someplace else. But we're not going to let you earn more than the President of the United States. Now, that would have been something. I, I, I've given talks all over the country. When I, when I get to that line, the place goes nuts. That's one thing people would really understand. Uh, you know, be very difficult to oppose because we are hard on people that are on welfare. We, it, we have a mean streak in us. Let's face it. When we give people welfare, we demand something in return. Workfare, limits on your income. You know, we don't want people driving, you know, the old, you know, driving around the Cadillac, Cadillac, welfare mom on Cadillac. Well, we got people in yachts now on our welfare on Wall Street. We have a right, we have a right to stop that. And we could have stopped it a year ago. It's a little harder now because people say, well, geez, you know, I don't know. They, they're making their money. Maybe they should keep it. I mean, we have no idea how they're making their money. That's the other question. We, have, we really don't know what socially useful means anymore. Just because you make money on Wall Street doesn't mean you're doing anything that deserves that amount of money. It just means you're running a casino. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. No, I have to say that uh, the, the Obama administration has been rather frustrating. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Obama talks a good talk here and there, but overall, uh, the record really isn't that good. Here's for- what, let, let me lay out what, what, what they're trying to do. We, we should at least try to understand what they're trying to do, and then we can rip them apart. Here's what they're trying to do. The crash was so severe that the, and in other words, the, the, the billionaire bailout society was in place by the time they got here. The crash was so severe that if they didn't resurrect what's called investor confidence, if they didn't resurrect investor confidence, there was going to be a perpetual run on all the financial institutions. The big investors were going to take their money out, and they were going to continue to take their money out, and the economy was going to actually stall. So their goal was 
you listen, listen to Geithner carefully. He talks about how much they've improved confidence in the markets. What they mean is people are willing to come back and play, and play in the markets with their money. Now, they're not talking about your money or my money. They're talking about the big money. Uh, they're talking about the, you know, the investor class is back in the game. So they, have, they can't do anything once you start down that path. They can't afford to do anything that scares the investment class. So, so the investment class rules the roost. That's why they're not they're opposed to draconian controls on high wages. They'd freak out with my Wall Street, um, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, uh, windfall profits tax. Although they have a heck of a time opposing it ver- uh, out loud, they don't want to have what's called the Tobin tax, which is a financial transactions tax. Uh, uh, you know, a tax on each financial transaction, which would stop a lot of speculation. The English, by the way, a Lord Turner of all people is advocating. The chief regulator there wants to do it. We're opposed to it because they're afraid it's going to scare investor confidence. And they think that, well, first you build up investor confidence, and then you impose regulations to prevent systemic collapse. Unfortunately, the latter ain't going to happen because once the the financial institutions got back on their feet then the first thing they did with our money the very first thing was hire an army of lobbyists to make sure no regulations were laid on them to this day the very most dangerous uh derivative products these financial products that uh, caused the crash are still deregulated because they've convinced barney frank and others that these are private matters between two corporations and, uh, uh, you know, between two consenting adults, and you don't need to have, you know, the government intruding, you know, on the bedroom of the corporation and the financial firm. Uh, so, and they're convincing them that this, this, this place is risk and makes the system uh, safer. They're going through the same dance again that we went through, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and they're winning. They, the, the banks are winning. And now the Obama administration is boxed in a corner because once you say that your goal is to, uh, uh, placate investor confidence, then you can't do anything that is going to upset the investor. And what you have to do to prevent this crisis from happening again is upset the investment class because they're not investing anyway right now in the real economy. You've got to say, hey, man, we are going to do something about unemployment which and the collapsing infrastructure of this country because that affects real people right now. And Obama is going to pay for this dearly uh, because what's going to happen a year from now in the November election or uh, next next fall mm-hmm. is that if unemployment doesn't come down in a hurry, and now no one's predicting it's going to come down to hurry, he's going to have a Republican Congress yeah. because it's going to look like all he did was placate the investor class and he didn't care about the average working person. Uh, that's going to, you know, it's a shame, but that's the, that's the corner his advisors boxed him into. And he said some very good things. I mean, he, he gave a great speech at Cooper Union on May 2nd that I think Paul Volcker, former Fed chair, helped, helped him write, which was about how he said exactly what I advocated in the looting of America. I couldn't believe it. He said, we got to uh, shrink Wall Street down. We can't have the best and brightest spend all the, you know, uh, 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 going into Wall Street instead of going into, they should be going into, you know, medicine, science, education, and not becoming, you know, gamblers on Wall Street. He said all the things that we said in looting America. He said it right. I said, oh, this is fantastic. And then, uh, you know, I think his advisor said, shut up. 
you know, it's going to screw up investor confidence. Well, Les, do you have any hope at this point that the Obama administration or Congress is going to do the right thing, is going to uh, bring us back to this type of regulation we need or some of the other solutions? I, I, think, we, yeah, I, I, think, the, I think actually the question, you know, I think we're going to be disappointed. Uh, but I think the question we have to ask is, how come we're not responding the way people responded in the 1930s? Uh, you know, there's an apocryphal conversation uh, between, I don't know if it's true or not, between, uh, I wasn't there, not quite that old, between Roosevelt and A. Philip Randolph. And A. Philip Randolph comes in and he, he lays out this, you know, incredible list of all the programs he thinks that Roosevelt should do to help the unemployed and poor and et cetera, et cetera. And he just, you know, lifts them, and Roosevelt sits there, nods his head, and says, sounds very good. Now you go out there and make me do it. In other words, he's saying, you've got to go out there and create the political climate for me to take these radical positions. Obama is only hearing it from the right. There is no, there is no organized progressive agenda that's banging away. There aren't, you know, the teabaggers are out there, but there's no, there's no demonstrations uh, demanding caps on Wall Street pay. There's nobody really... Uh, pushing hard for uh, serious reforms on Wall Street. There's a lot of anger, bitterness, uh, but it's, it's, not, it's not formed. The institutions that should be forming it, the progressive infrastructure of this country, completely fell asleep at the switch. I can't believe how uh, they're not paying attention. They're, they're not active. Well, they're not mobilizing their constituencies. So, you know, uh, those of us who consider ourselves progressives are... We're partly to blame. We're not pushing Obama hard enough. I mean, I'm, I'm banging away through my Huffington Post blogs and through the book, but, you know, I'm just one person. Yeah. Well, I don't know. My sort of theory on this is that you, you had a lot of young people, a lot of anti-war people, progressives, that uh, got together and uh, helped Obama to get elected. And, mm -hmm. now, you know, it's like this thing where we, we like being on the winning team, and now it's sort of like, oh, the guy we elected isn't really doing what we wanted, and now uh, we have to get outraged against him. You know, it was easy to get outraged against Bush if you were yeah, aggressive. And I think it's a funny yeah. place to be in, and it, it, it's, it's a weird psychological thing. Very good observation. Here, here's, here's what I think we're actually facing. I think the economy in the last 30 years, our society has turned into this billionaire bailout society. It's, it's different from Mexico. It's our own version of how this works. It's, it's a very American combination of incredible rich, richness and, and, and lots of almost possibilities for everybody else and then lots of hardship. Uh, and now we've added the bailout feature. Unfortunately, our, our way of viewing change is that it's got to happen right away. This thing took 30 years to put together. It's going to take a movement 30 years to undo it. Uh, it took the populace 30 years to bust the trust uh, during the, you know, when Teddy Roosevelt finally got in. Uh, he became a trust buster, even Taft. You know, a guy was too big to get, get in and out of the bathtub by himself. Mm -hmm. He busted more trust than Roosevelt did. But that was all because the populist movement over generations, over, uh, you know, several decades, it built up this crescendo of concern about uh, concentrated wealth. 
Same thing with the New Deal. There were uh, there was a progressive movement that was building, uh, you know, during the teens and the twenties uh, that kind of uh, uh, then blossomed. Uh, the combination of the labor movement, progressive movement, uh, uh, blossomed in the nineteen thirties and really gave shape to a progressive agenda. It took a generation to get its act together. It's going to take us a generation to undo the uh, uh, billionaire bailout society. I'm telling you right now, there are no quick fixes. If, there, if there's anybody listening to this show at all that's younger than I am and cares about this, they've got to build for the long haul. My hope is that a couple of things that are now coming up, one of them is, are these uh, blue-green alliances where labor and environment getting together, there's some promise there because they're at least beginning to address some of the central economic uh, issues about you know how to build how to get green jobs etc. They're not doing they're they're you know not doing nearly enough yet because they're small and they're just getting going. But that kind of thing has to grow and become the dominant alternative voice. Uh, we have to give shape to our vision. It's going to take a long time. You know till then uh, you know until we get engaged in uh, learning about how other movements have done in this past. Look, the civil rights movement. You know, didn't succeed right away. Neither did the anti-war movement. Uh, uh, it, it took a long time to, to get traction, and and the billionaire bailout society is entrenched. We've just had a incredible object lesson, and I, I'm frankly I'm shocked. I didn't believe that the bankers would be have this much guts or chutzpah, as we say in New York, <laughs> to actually you know uh, take the money we gave them, give it to lobbyists, and then lobby against the public interest. I thought, now that is, I mean, that's something, uh, and. Uh, they have a lot more gumption, and uh, the Democrats have a lot less than I think most of us uh, had hoped for. And now the Republicans look like they're going to ride the, ride in on this, uh, you know, uh, uh, deficit hawk on the wings of the deficit hawk. Mm-hmm. They're going to try to come in and scare everybody to death on that front. And of course, they have no plan whatsoever for how you're going to put people to work. And I'm telling you, that is a defining issue. The one thing the billionaire bailout society can't do is put enough people to work. Uh, and that's that's what we that's where we have to focus. That's that's the way uh, uh, to begin to uh, mobilize a uh, you know an alternative uh, direction. But it's going to take a long, long time. And I'm glad there are uh, people younger than us that may uh, you know may out of necessity feel that this is something they're going to have to work on. Uh, we need yes. their energy and jobs, jobs, jobs. We need to be looking at that. So. Uh, you are blogging regularly at the Huffington Post. Yeah, they, uh, yeah, about uh, once or twice a week, uh, I'm there ranting and raving. They've been good to me. They've been giving it a lot of play. They seem to like, uh, uh, you know, like these themes. Uh, I, for whatever reason, uh, you know, this crisis it makes me feel very uninhibited because it's so obvious what's going on, and there's no reason to pussyfoot. You know, just. Call it like it is, and that seems to be uh, resonating at least with the editors of Huffington Post. And I, you know, some of the pieces, you know, uh, <laughs> kick up quite a storm. Uh, well, you know, get a lot of people interested in, in arguing about them. Well, I, I like that sort of thing. And yeah, they actually they have uh, quite a few uh, good bloggers there that are, uh, you know, uh, sort of you know a progressive uh, site, but very critical yeah, no, of the Obama administration. They, oh, they, oh yeah, they have some. They have some good. You know, uh, they have some real. I mean, I think some of the better. Better folks, better best, better analysts are, are, are there, and you know I'm, hope, I'm hoping that the uh, you know looting of America can make a, a bit of a contribution. And uh, 
I, you know, if, if I were out there, I really would give people a, a money back guarantee because I think that they, you know, it's a cheap book. We, we on purpose, we we did it in paper right from the beginning so that it could be uh, something easily grasped. You know, students could use it. Uh, it's short. It's not hard to read, and I, I think it, you know, just it just it tells a story that people uh, kind of need to hear, even if they disagree with the conclusions at the end. Uh, they want to go in a different direction. At least, at least we ought to be looking at the same. Uh, problem, and I think I, everything that's happened since you know more information's come out since the books come out has confirmed the analysis. I don't have any uh, reason to back away from uh, you know the way that thing was put together. I think it was right on the money. Yeah, it's really helped Literally. me a lot, and I think it, it'll help many of you listening as well. So check it out. The publisher is Chelsea Green. They they do a lot of uh, great stuff. Anyway, uh, yeah, the looting of America. How Wall Street's Game of Fantasy Finance Destroyed Our Jobs, Pensions, and Prosperity, and What We Can Do About It. The author, Les Leopold, our guest today. Les, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and I I wish you the best out there. I'm sorry that you have to go through that infrastructure collapse. Uh, I feel really bad for 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 the kids that have to, you know, deal with these tuition hikes. You know, you deserve better. That's all I can say. You deserve a lot better. Well, we're hanging in there, and, yeah, keep up the good work, and uh, we'll you be too. Ch- checking you out on the Huffington Post. Okay, thanks, Les. Okay, Bye thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, yes, Les Leopold, that book, The Looting of America, How Wall Street's Game of Fantasy Finance Destroyed Our Jobs, Pensions, and Prosperity, and What We Can Do About It. There, there's much more he's got in that book that we didn't even get to. It, it, really, I, I recommend you check this book out. Okay, and uh, next week I've got another excellent guest, uh, Antonino D'Ambrosio, and he has written an amazing book called uh, A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash and the Making of Bitter Tears. This is a phenomenal story. Uh, uh, Just, uh, you know, you may think you know about Johnny Cash, but there's a lot here you probably don't know about. And so that's going to be a great show. That'll be next week. And and in just a few minutes here, we'll have Kate coming up with the gum tree. Good music. Always great music here on uh, KUCI. And I'll remind you once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. Yes, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'll be talking to you next week.